Hey there. It's a very momentous occasion. This is episode number 350. Yay! Of Smart Podcast Trashy Books. I'm Sarah Wendell. With me today is Rose Lerner. What do gothics and professional wrestling have in common? Well, if you're listening to Rose Lerner talk about it, they have a lot in common. Even if you're not into professional wrestling, I think you'll really enjoy listening to her, how she explains storytelling through the lens of professional wrestling. I had so much fun with this interview. Among the things we talk about, was Aaron Burr a troll? And can you fact check Hamilton shit posts on Tumblr? Is it time for a lesbian Jewish Regency Gothic retelling of Jane Eyre? Is there a lot to learn about storytelling in the inner world of professional wrestling? The answer to all of these questions, by the way, is yes, especially the second one. We also talk about Rose's Patreon. And I have to say, as a member of said Patreon, it is a freaking joy. Every Wednesday, there is a newsletter with deep, nerdy dives into specific parts of history, like what kind of play tea sets did young girls have during the Regency and what did they look like? If that sounds like something that you might be interested in, I have links in the show notes, of course. You can find the show notes at smartpitchestrashybooks.com slash podcast, and you can get in touch with me at the same place, or you can email me sbjpodcast at gmail.com, or you can call and leave a message at one 371 3272 This week's episode is being brought to you by Darkness Returns by Alexandra Ivy. After a brief hiatus, everyone's favorite vampire clan is back. War is once again upon the guardians of eternity, and the fate of the world rests in the hands of one rebellious vampire with a chip on his shoulder. The darkness is growing. Soon it will devour everything in its path. To fight back against the forces of the night, he must choose between loyalty to his kind and the mortal woman he loves. Darkness Returns by Alexandra Ivy is on sale now wherever books are sold and at kensingtonbooks.com. Every episode receives a transcript, and as always, this episode's transcript will be handcrafted by Garlic Knitter, or by the time you listen to this, it will have been handcrafted by Garlic Knitter. Thank you, Garlic Knitter. This week's transcript is brought to you by Radish. Discover a world where storytelling is reimagined with Radish, an app with thousands of romance stories from best-selling authors like Lisa Renee Jones, Kelly Armstrong, Julie Kenner, and Sylvia Day in bite-sized chapters, perfect to read on your morning commute, your lunch break, or before bed. You can enjoy epic romances full of everything, from billionaire bosses and tattooed bad boys to sexy vampires and paranormal shifters. You can join live chat rooms and interact with authors and fellow readers who love the same stories that you do. And you can explore a fresh collection of original stories written by some of daytime TV's top Emmy-winning writers, bingeable and fast-paced stories that you won't find anywhere else. Among the stories you can explore, you can read about Gita's outrageous dating life as she joins a shifter-only dating app. Her super sexy date, Reese Darby, turns out to be a human, and their crazy sexual chemistry makes it hard to believe he's not into shifters. Radish has it all. Download the app in the Google Play Store or the Apple Store for free today and begin your adventures on Radish. We have a podcast Patreon. I'm mentioning a lot of Patreons in this episode, but that's okay because they're both excellent. If you have supported the show with a monthly pledge of any amount, thank you so much for being part of our Patreon community. 
patrons help make sure every episode is transcribed and they help keep the show going each week. The show is accessible. The show is available. This is all good. If you would like to join the Patreon community, it would be most excellent if you did. You can have a look at patreon.com slash smartbitches. Monthly pledges start at $1 a month. And if the work that we do to bring you a podcast each week is meaningful to you, a $1 pledge would mean a lot. Your support for the show is so very appreciated. Thank you so much for that. You can have a look at all of the reward levels at patreon.com slash smartbitches. And drumroll, please. If you are going to Book Lovers Con next week, Thursday, May 16, 3.30 p.m. local time at the Hyatt Regency in Imperial 5C, Elise, Amanda, and I are recording a live show, and we hope that you will join us. We're going to be playing Cards Against Romance Tropes. There might be trivia. We're definitely going to be silly. I'm definitely going to get some wine. It is free for attendees of Book Lovers Con, but we do ask that you register just so we know how many people to expect and how many chairs to provide. The links to register at, are in the show notes, or you can go to... Nah, you know what? I'm not going to read this URL. Reading URLs is annoying, especially if people do, like, HTTP. <laughs> that just is my favorite when people do that on the radio. You can find all of the links to sign up in the show notes at smartbitchestrashybooks.com slash podcast. And yes, there's an HTTP in the front of that, too. <laughs> Wait, the only thing better than the HTTP is people on the radio going www, like, very carefully. <laughs> all right, I'm going to stop now. We'll have information at the end of the podcast as to who you are listening to and what music this is. I will have a preview of what is coming up on Smart Bitches, and I will have a terrible joke because Kit is keeping me in terrible jokes, and I love it. But in the meantime, it's time to talk professional wrestling because I know that you are wondering what does professional wrestling have to do with romance in the hands of Rose Lerner? You're going to learn a lot. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. On with the podcast. My name is Rose Lerner. I write historical romance, um, mostly Regency, but I, I have written a, also an American Revolution story. Um, I also have a freelance editing and research assistance business at rosedoesthereresearch.com, um, where you know I can read your manuscript. If you're stuck on something, like you can call me and we can kind of talk it through over the phone. Um, I can also do like if you're just starting on research, I can help you find resources. Um, if you want fact checking on a manuscript, um, obviously my specialty is like Regency and 18th century, but I'm game for anything. Yeah. And I also actually just started a Patreon, but I'll, I'll talk more about that later. I love the name of your book doctoring researching business. Isn't that cute? I actually started that as a, uh, it was a tag on my Tumblr um, when I would like, see a Tumblr post and I'd be like, this sounds fake. And I would like, look it up. And I started tagging them, Rose does the research and I really liked it. And so I'm reusing it now. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, even before they got rid of the porn, even before they got rid of all the porn, there was a lot on Tumblr that was not true. Yeah. And a lot of like Photoshopped things or like, Yeah. So mislabeled of, art, that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. What are some of the things that you have researched? Gosh, it was so long ago that I was on Tumblr. But I, you know, I used to do a, like I 
followed a lot of um, Hamilton stuff for a while. And there's a lot of Hamilton stories that go around that are not necessarily made up by people on Tumblr, but that were maybe made up by people at the time. Um, like <laughs> some of them are even in the musical. Like there's a line uh, where uh, Burr says, Martha Washington named a feral tomcat after him. And then Hamilton pops up and he's like, that's true. And it's actually, I think, in the Cherno biography, but it is not true. The source for that is a pamphlet, an anti-revolutionary pamphlet that came out um, during the revolution with a bunch of sort of like you know, mean things about key revolutionary figures, but they were not in, even intended at the time to be taken seriously. Like one of them was that George Washington had 13 toes, one for each of the colonies. <laughs> so there's like no pretense of like truth, but then somehow these things get like repeated, you know? Oh so. my God. So basically, <laughs> so basically you were working with the contemporary version of shit posting. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Uh, well, and Aaron Burr outlived almost everyone else, like from the Revolutionary War. And so he would just make stuff up, like, and really petty stuff. Like one time he was out with someone and they saw a portrait of George Washington. And the guy that he was with was like, man, George Washington had great legs, huh? And Aaron Burr was like, oh, like he paid the hottest captain in the army to pose for that painting for him. <laughs> And <laughs> there's like actually like quite a bit of documentation of the creative process with this particular painting. It was by like one of the big deal guy, Joseph something, I think. And there's like, you know, extant like accounts from him of the painting. And he had to borrow this thing because George Washington like only brought it with him to the first set, you know, like, sitting like there's definitely the, like he sat for the painting, but it's like who was going to contradict Aaron Burr? George Washington was dead. So. I am dying over here. Oh my! <laughs> so basically, everyone's dead. No one can contradict me. I'm just going to make up all kinds of shit. Aaron Burr was a troll. He actually like he when he when he was plotting his treason. So nobody knows exactly what his plan was. He may not have had a set plan because he was definitely someone that kind of liked to improvise in the moment, but. He told people, he told some people, oh, we're just settling, you know, this land and we're going to farm it. Then he told some people, we're going to incite a revolution in Mexico and we're going to like lead them to independence and I'm going to be king of Mexico. He told some people, we're going to do that and we're going to split off the Western states um, and get them to secede from the Union. He told people that he was going to stage a coup in Washington. He told other people that he was going to stage a coup in Washington and assassinate Thomas Jefferson. Like, and I'm sure that he was never planning to assassinate Thomas Jefferson because, like, that would just be too difficult. But I bet he had a really good time telling somebody that, you know? Like, so, you know how people update Shakespeare and they'll take a play and they'll set it in you know the 60s yes they'll take one of the older plays and they'll set it in you know roman times like they'll just take the story and put it somewhere else so you could it sounds like you could rewrite all of this with instagram and people posing as other people and 4chan <laughs> and reddit like aaron burr is like walking 4chan yes yeah that's amazing <laughs> so how much fun do you have chasing down historical rumors? Like, is this the most fun? 
It's honestly my favorite thing. I mean, it, it doesn't have to be. Sometimes it's not even that juicy. Like the other week, like this was such a, like, I mean, I don't want to even say waste because I really had a good time. But it's like I had so many things on my to-do list and I was writing and I happened to need to look up like in pictures of embroidered garters as like a reference image thing. And I ended up looking at these two garters and they both had like, they were clearly not like a matched set. They weren't created by the same person, but they both had the same kind of bird and tree on them. And I was like, what is the significance of this bird and tree? And then like five hours later, it was like, parrots were once a symbol of the Virgin Mary because of this anecdote about Julius Caesar. And then and it's just like, it got way out of hand, but now I know all about the history of how parrots and cherries symbolize virginity and why. Oh, <laughs> wow. That's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to read the full manifesto, I did write it all up on my Patreon um, for patrons. Um, but yeah, it uh, it's, a, it's a saga. And it, it, it's really interesting because I think – we understand how our meme culture works, but looking at how like historical meme culture works is very confusing because information is passed in a different way. And so it can be really difficult to kind of understand like, okay, all of these paintings are using this to symbolize this thing, but like, how did people know that that's what it meant and how to interpret it when like, you know, they didn't have the internet and they didn't have necessarily magazines and they didn't have like, you know, how were they conveying to everyone all the way across Europe that like, if you see a parrot in a painting, like it represents X, Y, Z, like I can't even imagine, but somehow they all knew. That's incredible. Yeah. And the subtle sort of, um, incorporation of symbolism is like another form of shit posting. Mm -hmm. That's incredible. So how do you incorporate this deep dive into nerd culture historically? How do you incorporate that into your own writing? I mean, uh, how, many, how many historical romances have you written now? Are you like up to – you have a lot of books. You know, I really I, – I think it's a lot of books, but then I look at what other people have written in the same amount of time, and I'm like, ooh. But so I, I have five full-length and three novellas out now. Uh, that's a lot, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. That is quite a lot. Do you have a favorite of what you've written? I, well, oh, I, I, this is like my least favorite because I always, like of anything, I can never pick a favorite because it's like when you're like little children and they don't want to have a favorite toy because the other toys will be jealous. It's like, I like still do that as an adult, but like, um, True Pretenses is my favorite favorite thing that I've written. It's uh, the second book in my Lively St. Lemiston series, but it, it really, it's loosely connected. So you can definitely read it first if you want to. It's a Jewish con artist from the London slums. And he has, um, he has this plan that he's going to marry his brother off to a rich lady who um, needs her dowry really fast for various family reasons. And, um, but then unfortunately he falls in love with her himself and it's like a marriage of convenience slash con artist slash small town politics story. And I really love it. 
It's so interesting to hear people talk with such affection about their books because sometimes you'll talk. To, I'll talk to a writer and they'll be like, "I can't pick one," or the fa- my favorite is the one that's co- you know currently sitting in the front of my brain. Um, but you have so much affection for true pretenses. I do. I I love them all. I have to be honest. Like I am definitely someone that rereads my own work and that. I mean, Does I it actually work on you when you reread that, it. Yeah, and I I actually think that that part of that is that I write slowly and. You know, I I I wish that I could write faster, but um, when I do, I kind of burn out. Like when I the the only book that I have really written on like a tight deadline is "Listen to the Moon," which is the the one that comes right after "True Pretenses," and it's a butler and a maid, and they uh, it's also a marriage and convenience story because that's like my favorite trope. But they have to marry to get this job that's like. The, the guy wants like a respectable married couple to be like his butler and like first housemaid or whatever. And, um, you know, it's been a long time. I had a chance to re-release it and fix some things that I wasn't as happy with and I've come around on it, but, um, that was the only one that I wrote on a tight deadline and I, it, I burned out, you know, like I wrote, I finished it and I wrote it and I published it and I, I'm proud of it, but I, I didn't feel good about it at the end. And I think it was because I made myself rush and that's just not, you know, I've come around to understand that I just, I really love what I do and I want to keep feeling that way. And so instead of trying to make myself write faster, I'm trying to have more sources of income so that I can give myself that time and also be freelancing or having that monthly income from Patreon or whatever it is um, in the meantime. I understand. I understand. What what do you think is the key to being able to reread your own work and have it still work on you? Because I am, I am like you, I will reread things that I've written. Um, and I don't think it's because I'm a, a slow writer. I'm actually pretty quick, but I have the world's worst memory. And I'll be like, uh-huh. I wrote that. Oh, wow. <laughs> I, I, re- I wrote this. Wow. It totally works on me. One, I write my own catnip and Two, I write what I like best, but three, I forget it as soon as it's out of my brain. So it's always like a new discovery. Like, oh wow, past Sarah, well done. What do you think is it is about your writing that works on you? Are you also writing your favorite things? Yeah, that is. It's like when you know, and I I read. I love many people. You know, like I read a well. I don't read as much as I used to because I don't have the time, and I wish that and the attention span. And I, I but you know, I but it, it when I read it, it's exactly what I want because I wrote it and it's exact I wrote it exactly how I wanted it to be and so there's something very comforting about you know every single thing is and and I I don't I can't say what the key is because there's a lot of things in my life that I'm not that way about you know like I I hate looking at pictures of myself you know but but writing is one of the few places in my life where I do feel confident and it it took me a long time to get there and to kind of like let go of that inhibition and that self that self censorship and that mm-hmm. self consciousness that I feel you know like and and I'm not, like even like in social interactions like if I have a conversation with someone that I don't maybe know that well like I'll play it back in my head and I'll like you know armchair quarterback myself of like I should have said this and I should have said that and I could have but with my writing I have come to a place where I don't do that and I you know what? I don't know how I did it and it's kind of magic and I kind of just <laughs> That's not, not look at it or touch it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Is it hard for you to turn off your self-editing while you're writing? No. Um, 
I do. I have to admit that I do self-edit when I read back what I wrote, and but it's not. It's just like, oh, I wish I had worded that slightly differently. Like mm-hmm. I do, I do do that. But um, no, it really like I remember, and I I think I probably tell this story a lot, so I apologize if anyone's heard it before. But I, there was a particular. I remember once I was writing um, a piece for um, a fan community that I was in that was about uh, writing sex scenes. Mm-hmm. And I did a poll, actually, um, an anonymous poll where people told me like which of my sex scenes they liked the most and what they liked in it in them um, as part of my prep for this this piece that I was doing. And I remember there was a particular story that I had written, and there was a moment in it where the characters were like about to have sex, and like one of them like was like worried about like a piece of their, they were going to mess up something that they were wearing or something. And I remember when I was writing the scene, you know, because this was like a long, this was a long time ago. And so sex scenes were really different in historical romance. You know, they were very like soft focus. Everyone was always like swept away on a tide of passion, like (laughs) lost to the world, you know, like lots of waves, lots of cresting. Yeah. yeah, Lots of dances as old as time, but like, um, and so I remember, Pause, like and and you know ever, there was this debate about whether if you talked about a condom in a sex scene would it kill the mood and I feel like we've kind of moved past that as a community but like I remember I was writing this scene and I was like is this you know should he be more caught up in the moment is it like okay that he's like you know is is this like not sexy that he's like worried about this article of clothing like even in like the heat of the moment right and that was like the moment that like again and again and again and again, like readers singled out as like their favorite moment. And I think that was like a real like light bulb for me of like, you know, don't worry about if it's weird. Don't worry about if it's not sexy. Like don't worry about, you know, if it's not likable, if it's like readers want that emotional naturalism, I think. And, you know, not always and not in every situation and in different levels, like not, you know, I don't want to read, be reading Dostoevsky when I'm reading a romance. I want to be reading mm-hmm. Dostoevsky when I'm reading Dostoevsky. But at the same time, the way that I write is I do kind of get in character and I kind of experience the scene like along with my character and just kind of record like what, it, you know, and, and sometimes I'm surprised by the character's emotional reaction. There's a moment in True Pretenses where like they have sex and then Ash gets like really sad. And mm-hmm. I like didn't plan that. It just happened while I was writing, but it it made sense when I like it made sense when I thought about it and I worked it in and I so I I really do just kind of follow along instinctually like my own emotional experience and I have to trust that and so that to me is like the opposite of self editing and so I don't self edit when I write I edit when I edit um, that makes sense and I kind of have to do it that way for myself and my process that makes sense. What are you working on right now? I I saw on your Patreon that you are working on a lesbian Jewish Regency Gothic. Oh yeah, now, I am indeed. I, I have not seen those four words together before. <laughs> now that I have seen them in that order, I am very curious. Would you just start on the first page and just read now? Like, just go ahead, read the whole thing. Tell me about it. <laughs> Well, I actually, uh, when I hit 50 patrons, I'm going to post chapter one and I'm only like four patrons away. So anybody listening, 
But um, I will link to the Patreon folks. <laughs> thank you. Never but so I was reading Jane Eyre is one of my favorite books ever. And I, you know, it's a problematic fave, but I love it. And um, I was reading, I was writing All or Nothing, which is about um, a Jewish gaming den hostess who um, this shy architect like wins her in a game of chance. And then he's, she's like, oh yeah, let's get it on. And he's like, actually, I'm going to a house party this week and I don't want my ex-boyfriend to hit on me while we're there. So like, can you just come and like pretend to be my girlfriend and then I can actually like work while I'm there? And she's like, this is not what I thought this was going to be, but okay. <laughs> and then um, they, uh, yeah, obviously fake dating inevitably leads to real dating, as we all know. But there's a scene at the house party where he's working and she's hanging out while he's working and reading. And so I was looking for a book for her to be reading. And um, I remembered my mom had this book and I, I really wish that I had kept it. It wasn't very useful, but I was fond of it. It was this like very old, like 60s book. And it was called like Jews in the Literature of England or something like that. And um, it had a quote from this Maria Edgeworth novel. Um, oh, I had to read her in grad school. Did you read Castle Rackrent? Yeah, I don't remember the whole lot of it, but I remember, I definitely remember reading it and writing a paper on it. What was the quote? So do you remember, there's a story about this, uh, his name is Sir Kit, and he had a Jewish wife, and he wanted her to give him like this diamond cross. So there's already a lot of weird stuff, right? Because it's told um, like comically from the point of view of a servant who like is like, you know, biased and doesn't have all the information and whatever. But so... What we know from him is that this woman was Jewish, but she also had a diamond cross, which implies that perhaps she had converted. But so the Sir Kit wants the diamond cross and she won't give it to him. And so he starts like making her he starts like making her eat sausage, which obviously isn't kosher. Obviously is not kosher. And then he locks her in her room and she's like locked in her room for like years. And then Luckily, and it was, it's like really stressful to read, you know, and it's only like a yeah. few pages, like the whole thing is just a few pages and it works out for her in the book. The other ladies in the, in the town, I think start like vying over who's going to be his second wife, which really is believable, which is the sad thing. But like, he, anyway, he dies in a duel with like some lady in the neighborhood's brother that he's been like, you know whatever. And um, she is freed from her imprisonment and takes her money and goes back to England and lives happily ever after. But there's this line where he tells the servant that when he was courting her, he used to call her my pretty Jessica, which is a reference to Merchant of Venice um, in which there's an interfaith marriage. But that really like stuck with me as like a chilling, right? Like you, the guy is nice and then he's not nice. Yeah. And he the thing that he thought was cute is now the thing that he's angry about. And it's like, you can't ever see it coming. It could just happen at any moment. Anyway, so I was reading this and there's, there's a footnote about um, a real case that she based it on in the book. And anyway, so I was reading this and I was like, what if there was a governess? <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, the book is kind of a Jane Eyre retelling, except instead of um, ending up with Mr. Rochester, she falls in love with the wife in the attic. Oh, my. This sounds cool. I'm really excited about it. 
So are you going to write chapters, post them to your Patreon, and then release it as a standalone novel? No, I'm just gonna. I just I'm just gonna post the first chapter to my Patreon. I'm uh, hoping to be. I mean, I don't. I I try not to do deadlines, but I have a goal to be done. I'm not gonna even say what the goal is, but I, I have right. a goal of when I want to be done with the first draft. So I'm I'm hoping the book will come out either late this summer or this fall. I'm working on it. I I think, you know, a lot of stuff happened in my life in the middle of writing it. And so I'm definitely behind where I was hoping to be, but I I think I'm in the home stretch with the draft, first draft. Oh, that's very cool. When you write, is your process familiar? Like you get to a point and you're like, oh yeah, this part where I hate everything and think this is a (laughs) terrible idea. Oh yeah, this part where it's like my brain's on fire. Do you go through similar statuses of, of of the process of writing something or is it different every time? You know, it, it really kind of is different every time. <laughs> unfortunately. You no, know, unfortunately. I, yeah. Um, I've been really trying with this one. Um, I've been uh, – Courtney Milan uh, turned me on uh, – she turned a lot of people on, I think, but to mini habits, which is where, like, instead of trying to write, you know, like, a thousand words a day or whatever, you just set a goal to write, you know, like, ten words a day. And the yeah. idea is that you always feel like you're making progress no matter what. And mm-hmm. once you actually, like, you don't have that resistance in your brain of, like, I don't have time to write a thousand words because you always have time to write, to write 10, 10 words, 10, right? Yeah. And once you actually sit down and start, you're much more likely to keep going as well. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I definitely, I there have been points where I was a lot better about following through with it, but I was, it is something that I've kind of been trying more and I've never been a write every single day person, but I have been trying that a little bit more. Um, and when I write in big chunks, I write more at a time. Mm-hmm. When I write smaller, I do kind of stay a little more in, it takes me less time to get back into it when I start mm-hmm. again. And so yeah. I wish that I was more analytical about this stuff. I really do. I can understand the feeling of not wanting to look too closely at the process in the fear that analyzing it too much makes it stop working. I've I've heard the mini habits um, concept explained so many different ways. One being uh, to motivate yourself to go for a run. All you have to do is put your shoes out and go out the door. Like you don't have to go mm-hmm. for a run. The goal is put your shoes on, go to the door. Because once you put your shoes on and go to the door, you might as, you might as well be like, well, okay. Might as well go. Might as well go do that thing I plan to do. It's also, I think, really hard once you've begun to think of your writing as a as not only a a, an, a part of your creative brain, but also a, a business. The actual writing part, it can be really easy to put that last. I have yeah, found. it's so true. Like I have to do this thing for promotion and marketing, and this thing for you know business stuff, and I have to do this banking thing, and the actual creative part of the business. Often, it's way too easy to put that last on your list of things to do. So saying, all right, I can do 10. 10 words, no problem. Once yeah. you start with 10, it's easy like, oh, whoa, hello, 200. That's more than 10. Nice job. I read. Have you read uh, Alyssa Cole's uh, Duke by Default? So there, she talks about the um, – there's a, the ADD YouTube channel in it. Yes. And she linked – so I emailed her and I was like, what's the real – channel and she linked me to how to ADHD and I was reading something on there and there was this concept that was like it's important but it's not urgent yes and it's so hard to do those things that are important but they're not urgent because if it's urgent I can do it I always do things that are urgent but if it's important but not urgent it's like well I can do it tomorrow yeah and but then not having it done for me um 
it almost sets off like an irritation in my brain. Yeah. You didn't do the thing. You didn't do the thing. You didn't like, oh my gosh, it's, I'm not on fire. It's fun. Nope. You didn't yeah. do the thing. That, that <laughs> important, but not urgent is, is, can be very hard to categorize. I, I have tried a number of different strategies and they all work at different times to deal with those tasks. Yep. So I have been informed that you are deeply, deeply passionate about professional wrestling. Very true. Okay. I did not know this. I would really like to know about this. How long have you been following pro wrestling and how does it overlap with writing romance? Okay. So I actually have not been a fan for very long. I, um, I mean, I guess now it's a few years, but I would say I got into it and like, oh my gosh, what is time even? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> 2015 or 2016? My ex-wife watched it when she was a kid mm -hmm. and she had also like, you know, just wasn't paying attention to it for a really long time. But then um, we were actually really into Arrow uh, for like a couple of years there. And um, the, the star of Arrow had like a storyline at SummerSlam. And so she was like watching like his stuff and then she was like, oh, like this is really cool. And she got really into it again. And then it took her about a year to like get me uh, to be willing to, cause you know, she was watching it at home a lot and I would see it. And the thing about professional wrestling is that it's really like, it's a lot like, like Commedia dell'arte or like Kabuki, like it's very stylized and it doesn't really make any attempt to look real. I mean, there are things that people work on, right? Like people work very hard at looking like they're really in pain or like really, right? Like there are things that people work on like artistry to make it more convincing. But in reality, I mean, if you watch people wrestle, like it's not like a movie where they make it look like it's real through stunts. It's like they, mm -hmm. there's like stylized, like there's a way that you punch in wrestling and there's like a way. And so it kind of takes time to get used to the sort of tropes and the um, literary conventions. And like once you have kind of absorbed them and you like have your brain just accepts like that's a punch mm -hmm. in this context, then you can kind of connect with it emotionally. But it's like hard to do when you're just looking at it without context for the first time. Um, you're just like, what is this? I used to live with uh, a roommate before my husband and I were married. We had a roommate and our roommate was super into wrestling and I did not get it until I understood it as a combination of a story and choreography. It's not fake. It's choreographed. Well, it's actually not choreographed either. It's like a lot of it is improvised, but it is, right. yeah, it's planned. Yes. Yeah. There's a yeah. plan. There's a structure. And, yes. I, and I understand how that could relate to romance. It's, I think I've, I mean, I've learned a lot about storytelling from it because, um, well, I mean, there's a couple of different ways that it relates to romance. I mean, first of all, the only way to make wrestling interesting is if there's a store of the characters that are fighting have a relationship of some kind. I mean, that's not true. There's like championship style matches, right? There's like a lot of things, but almost all of the really like big, uh, it, there's a lot of wrestling terminology. So I'm going to try to explain as much as possible. But if I miss something, just stop me and be like, what is that? But mm -hmm. so uh, to start off with, there's heels are bad wrestling, bad guys and faces uh, which originally started out as baby faces um, and are um, good guys. And then a feud is like when uh, two people like have a, like kind of a ongoing rivalry in a series of matches. Um, and so m almost all of the really 
famous feuds that people get really, really invested in are when there's some kind of long ongoing relationship. And it can be an ongoing negative relationship where the people have just hated each other for a really long time. And some of those are amazing, but a lot of them are people that used to be really, really close. The stories follow the structure of a romance novel. And the great thing about wrestling is that because it goes on for so long, like there's no closed canon in wrestling. Like the, the it's like people will be best friends and they'll be closer than brothers for like two years. And like every time they come out and people will be like, hug, 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 and like cheer when they hug each other and all this. And then one of them turns on the other one and now they're enemies and they, they've they ne- never hated anyone. Like they hate each other. And usually one of them is like brokenhearted and trying to get the other one back first for a while. And then he's like, stands up or he or she like stands up for themselves and they're like, fine, I guess if you don't want to be friends then I'm going to beat you. And like, then, you know, and they have this series of like very emotionally intense snatches. And then a lot of times, like a little bit later, like they'll get back together. And they'll be best friends again, you know? And so you get to see that, like, fighting. The beats of the romance. Yeah. So there's very specific storytelling beats in the sequence of these feuds. Yeah. And when they're done well, I mean, it is, like, gripping. I remember there was one. But the other thing, but before I get sidetracked into just talking about wrestling storylines that I love, um, the other thing is that wrestling is a very, like, elemental like it's it's really stripped down to its essence as far as storytelling because you have to be able to tell the story through two guys or two women or a man and a woman uh, but that's less common fighting each other right and so um and and it really is like the payoff with the wrestling story is that fight and that because it's like you're like you the the adrenaline and the sort of like like the combination of like competitive sports and like emotion is like i mean i can't explain the high that you can get from like watching like a really tightly plotted beautifully choreographed like deeply like well acted like wrestling match i mean it is like unbelievable like because and it's all about getting the crowd to really want one of them to win Mm -hmm. right and so I feel like I've learned a lot and that can shift through a match too of like oh I go in and I really love the the villain and I you know I I, he's been a jerk but I he's my fave and I want him to win and then he can do something so nasty that in the middle of the match like I will flip and be like no, like, screw you. That was unacceptable and you need to pay for your crimes. And so, and it's all about like the way, the strategies that people use to get the the crowd really, really like uh, the word they use is hot, like really, really hot um, are very sophisticated, but also like very broad usually. And so I think it really like translates well to genre fiction. And it's taught me a lot about, like that, for example, I think I, I see advice sometimes and I've probably given this advice too of like, oh, like your villain is like stealing the scenes, like tone him down. Right. And I think what I've learned from wrestling is like, you don't need to tone down the villain. You need to either tone up the hero or the heroine if the if the audience isn't rooting for them enough. Or you need to just you can have a villain that's as fabulous and amazing as you want if they are mean enough to the main character. There is no villain in wrestling. That, and I love villains. Some of the villains are my absolute faves, but in a fight, if they have been nasty enough, 
like I will still root against them. And that's something that has really, I think, taught me a lot about storytelling. It's not just engaging with the hero or the protagonists or the heroines. You have to also be emotionally engaged with the villain. I do, certainly. I I definitely do. I find it very boring. And like when I think about like the MCU, for example, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, like the movies that I love are the ones where there's an interesting villain and the ones where there's just like some guys with like weird makeup. I'm not interested. I also love a villain who has motivations that I understand. Like this is not the choice that I would make, but I see how you got there. I understand how you got there. And yeah, that's hard. You made different choices than I would, but I I understand. I don't empathize, but I understand. Yeah, and I really do think it's about the story there. Because, like, for example, one of my very favorite – I'm going to pick this one because it's really easy to explain. So one of my really favorite you, wrestling stories – I was going to ask you what your favorite one was. I need to know what your favorite wrestling story is. Please this tell is me. This honestly probably my third favorite, but it's the easiest to explain – Um, because less of, I mean, not that there aren't great performances, but I feel like my other two favorites, um, Bailey and Sasha and Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn, like really rely on like the details of the performances and it's like hard to explain, but the shield, um, so the shield came in as these, like, there are these three guys, um, and they came in as sort of these, like, like unknown, like, you know, angry young men. They, they they sort of had this like SWAT team vibe, almost like they wore like vests with a lot of pockets and stuff. But um, they they would come in and they. I think they started out as sort of like mercenaries, like they worked for somebody and they were like protecting him from some other guy. And I don't know, but like, um, and they were they were they started out as heels and they would come in and they were, because there were three of them, they could team up and defeat like almost, and they worked together really well. That was the other thing. It wasn't just that they were, there were three of them, but they were really, really tightly linked. Like they could work together really well. Like they would come in and they would surround the ring and they would do these like incredible team moves that like required a lot of like, trust and like coordination and like you really bought and and then they celebrated that's the other thing is like the fight is so good and then the celebration afterwards is so sweet and like people will hug and they'll jump into each other's arms and they'll like run and these guys would like like they would ruffle each other's hair they would like kiss each other on the forehead like like it was like they loved each other they were like a puppy pile they were like an evil puppy pile and Mm. Like you just and and they were they were villains, but they got and this is another wrestling term. When when someone is over, it means that the crowd really is behind them, and so um and and some of it people can get over, and there are some people that just have it where like they can get you to like they can walk into a room and you root for them, and it's like this sort of weird it factor, and I I don't know what it is, but it's amazing. But so anyway, they got really, really over. And so then when, when a villain gets really over a lot of times, um, they turn them into a face because it's hard to book unless they're really, really good. And you have really over faces as well. It can be hard to book matches because in theory, you want the crowd to root for the good guy structurally. Um, and so if the villain is too popular, it becomes difficult 
to do, although really good heels can do it. It's all about like, even if the heel comes in and everyone cheers, if he can, he can still get the crowd behind the face if he knows what he's doing. But mm-hmm. some guys either are not that good or are to don't have enough, like are, don't share enough, you know, artistically. To do. So anyway, um, but so they got really over and they became, I wouldn't even say good guys, but they, they won a lot of matches and then they were up against sort of like the big evil faction that was sort of like the corporate overlords or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were like, almost dead like every week you know it's like there was this match and like they they ripped they ripped roman's vest off and they were like beating him with a kendo stick and like it was like you know it got really brutal um attractively brutal and that's the other thing is that wrestling is like very inherently kinky because it's basically people role-playing hurting each other oh my god and it can who who secretly love each other and our team right but oh my god to be yeah Oh my god, I never saw it that way, but you're totally right. Yeah, and it can get it can go from just sort of like role playing to like really like, you know, people like like there like the WWE doesn't get that brutal, but there are some pretty it's called a death match when they do like, you know, like barbed wire or like light tubes or whatever. There's like more extreme stuff that is out there. Um I'm kind of squeamish and I get worried about people, so I tend to sort of, I'm like, uh, if I know it's like some tax, okay, but like that's kind of, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, anyway, so they they were like getting beat up like every week. It was like, and then um, Seth, oh, baby Seth. Seth was like the uh, the acknowledged leader of the Shield. He was like, right. and he, they, they, the, the guys, the bad guys come out and the shield are in the ring, like facing them as a team. And um, the bad guy says like, and, and Seth goes and he gets a chair and a chair. There's like certain weapons in wrestling. It's like tropes, right? There are like certain weapons that are common in wrestling. Um, and one of them is a folding chair. One, because when you're in a wrestling arena, there are always folding chairs around. I assume that's how it started, that it was like they would grab a folding chair that someone was sitting on from the audience. Um, and they just had a bunch of extras. But they also, you know, they they're, they look brutal, but they are flat. They distribute the force evenly. They, they bend easily. Like they're not, you know, so they don't really hurt people usually, but they look nasty. And they make a good noise. No, yeah, so, they make a very loud noise. Yeah. So, and actually the weird thing is that, um, a lot of the noise in wrestling, if you watch on TV, it's not as loud because they, they mic, you know, they mic in certain ways, but Mm -hmm. if you're in the room, the sound when someone's back hits the mat is this like incredible, like smack, like that it really startled me the first time I went to a live show. But so they, they get, um, he, he gets a chair and it's like, oh, he's going to defend them with this chair, right? Mm-hmm. And then uh, he hits Roman in the back with the – and the other – the villain says, like, you always got to have a plan B. And then Seth hits Roman in the back with the chair. Oh, shoot. And Roman goes down and then you see the look on Dean's face, like the total <gasps> stunned disbelief on Dean's face. And then Seth hits him with the chair. And then, and it's like, it's heartbreaking. Like, it is heartbreaking. And Seth, like, Seth went from being beloved by everyone to, like, 
10 minute chance of you sold out every time he walked in the room. Wow. It was and all because of the choice that he made to put himself above whatever yes. the, group, the, the group was doing. Yeah. And he, he would do these promos of like, um, I didn't sell out. I bought in. And like, um, oh when I said, believe in the shield. I was really saying, believe in Seth Rollins and like, oh, he was such a jerk. And the thing is like people, and he was a really great villain. Like he was like, he twirled his mustache. He had depth. He was like vulnerable. He really just wanted his evil parents to love him. You know, like he was like clearly like losing it. He was like, in, like he would go into fugue states. Like it was like really great performance but because you really loved the other guys you know you always rooted for them like dean would come out and he would be like heartbroken they had match they had this match where dean said like i love you like right before he like hit him it was like so good like but they did this thing that i will never forget where he he came out with like one of his evil henchmen and he like put dean's head on this like thing of cinder blocks Oh, and he stomped Dean's head through it. Oh, good God. And Dean is one of those guys like Dean's thing is that he always gets back up, right? Like no matter what you throw at him, like he'll stumble to his feet and he'll pull it out, you know, like that. He's kind of a guy. There are certain guys that get beat up a lot and that's kind of their thing. And like, he's one of those guys and like, he always gets back up and he like went down and he didn't get back up. And it was like, Oh my, and like, even Seth looked shocked. Seth was like, what the hell did I just do? Like, I thought he was going to get back up and he's just standing there. And like, everyone is just like, my heart, my heart has been ripped out of my chest. What is happening? But it's like, so no matter how great Seth is and how much you love him, you don't want him to win. And I think that is the key. I want to see you fight, but I do not want to see you win. Yeah. Yeah. Because the the battle is more interesting when you're there, but we don't want you to be the victor because you're terrible. Yes. So how do you translate that into writing romance? What are the things that you have taken from these these particular this particular format of storytelling? The book that I'm writing now, um, the villain, the villain is actually like not based in terms of his like you know, actions at all. But like, he looks like Daniel Bryan, who's like one of those guys I was talking about where he comes out and he just has that it factor where you like, you're just like, Oh, like, I don't even like, he has a reality. He's on a reality show with his, like his, his wife's reality show, but he's on it. And he, he's got that thing where it's like, he'll do something that really pisses me off. And then, like, (laughs) the next time I see him, it's like, he walks in, I'm like, it's Daniel Bryan. And I like, forget You know, and it's like, I have to like struggle to like remember. And I think, I think I just think more as I write about like who the reader is going to root for. Like, and I like a sympathetic villain, but it's like, Mm -hmm. I would get feedback of like, oh, I want a book for the villain. And I'm like, but he did these terrible things. Like, and I think it's helped me like, let go of like, it's like the person is gonna, people are going to love this villain. And I just Mm -hmm. have to let that go because the, like, it's not about him being repulsive in everything that he does it's about like his actions and like Mm -hmm. the consequences for those right and to a certain extent it also sounds like when you watch wrestling and when you look at the storytelling within wrestling feuds you're also considering the i don't want to say manipulation the active engagement with the audience because you know how the audience is going to react you're going to play that moment for the maximum impact because you 
because you know the structure is in, is is already in place when this begins the reaction and the engagement of the audience is always something that's considered during the process of developing a match the same is also true when you're trying to write romance you want to emotionally engage your audience your your reader so that they will experience the emotions that you're trying to communicate yes but you can't put in the big sound effects of a wrestling match. And the, no, you can't. But the the other thing I think, um, the book that I'm working on now is a gothic. And it's a first person, one point of view, got, like old school gothic in that way, instead of the tr- the dual POV that we've gotten used to in mm-hmm. romance. Something that I've been really enjoying is that in my other books, I really want the people to have a healthy relationship. Right. And something that I've really remembered with watching wrestling is that even though I believe in working for healthy relationships and I want that for my characters and my romances, I also like deeply, like I love to get in unhealthy toxic relationships and roll around in them. And it is in many ways, like the thing that most emotionally engages me is like deep, inextricable, ambivalent, all consuming relationships where it's like they love each other, but they hate each other, but they, and it's been so long and they can't separate, but they want to separate, but they don't want to separate, but they chase each other, but they push, you know, like I just, I love that, like the Blair and Serena and the Loki and Thor mm-hmm. and the, um, you know, the Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn, like those are like often like my faves. And so something that I've really been enjoying in this Gothic digging into, because with a Gothic, it's like there's going to be a happy ending. Like don't even worry, there's going to be a happy ending. But it doesn't have to be the same for me. It doesn't have to be the same kind of happy ending because part of the joy of a gothic is that like something is wrong in this house, right? And it, and the thing that's wrong in the house like often symbolizes something that is wrong in the world or like in society. And so everything doesn't necessarily have to be fixed at the end. I've been really enjoying being able to write characters and relationships that are like a little more messed up not worry as much about like, are they going to resolve this? Are they going to figure this out? Are they going to like deal with this like relationship issue? So it's helped me go a little darker and like enjoy that instead of worrying about like, oh, but in 10 years, are they going to be like fighting with each other? You know, like it's like, whatever, it's a gothic. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah. I always ask this question, what books are you reading that you want to recommend to people? Well, uh, Spinning Silver just got nominated for a Hugo, and I'm about to reread it. I have read it already, but um, I read it when it came out. But it's um, it's a oh my god, I love it so much. I love it so much. There's it's a YA. It's like a it's fantasy. Um, it's set in a world that's like sort of Eastern European ish. Yeah, and it's about it's sort of a Rumpelstiltskin retelling. There's like a lot of fairy tales that are kind of like drawn on. But it's like three women. One of them is like a Jewish moneylender's daughter uh, Mm -hmm. who obviously rhetorically makes this brag that she can turn silver into gold. And then this like mystical being who like loves gold like pops up and is like, I have a job for you. And she's like, uh, what? Uh." (laughs) Um, And then there's like a girl who's being forced to marry the Tsar. And then there's like um, a peasant girl who like, has like an abusive family situation um, and they all kind of get drawn together in this like epic, but it's like, it's so good. And I like did not know like how much I needed like that kind of like Jewish fantasy romance until I was reading it. And I just love it so much. 
My favorite part of that book is how very carefully the heroine builds her ability to utterly take control of all of the people who have made such a mess of her life. Mm-hmm. Like she is not there to necessarily burn it all down, but she, she's not putting up with anyone's shit anymore. And her fearlessness and her her utter spine are so inspiring. I just, I, I mean, I just, I just love her so much. I just really, I, Delicious, don't, right? have, I don't even have words. The, my only thing with that book is that I wanted her and Wanda to end up together like so badly. Oh my gosh. So badly. It's the best chemistry. What is that I'm about? like so sad that it didn't happen. That was honestly my thing with the previous book too, Uprooted, which I really enjoyed as well. But I was just like, but Cassia, why isn't she with Cassia? <laughs> and I, I even liked like I, I know some people didn't like the central romance and I I enjoyed it but like I just yeah so um and then I I have it I I read an earlier draft and I haven't read it since it came out but I know that it's going to be even better now but um Alyssa Cole's Can't Escape Love which is a novella in her Reluctant Royal series so you read it you said you read a Duke by default okay so Portia's twin sister Reggie who has the the site the girls with glasses like geek fan site forum thing so she now um has insomnia and the only thing that's helping helping her to sleep were these like old videos she used to follow this like puzzle guy on like a live stream and Mm -hmm. he would like solve puzzles and talk and like his voice like really helped her sleep and then he like took his account down and so she's like but i i still need to sleep so she's trying to like track him down to get him to like record stuff for her to use to like sleep and then it turns out that he is now making the escape room for an anime convention that's like a tie-in with her like very very favorite show but he's like not a fan of the show and she's like this will not stand so like then they have to make this deal of like she's gonna help him with his escape room and he's gonna help her not have insomnia anymore um but then they fall in love and it's like of course they do so but it's like so good like i can't even like gus is like such a sweetheart and he makes delicious salad dressing there's a part speaking of things where it's like don't worry if it's sexy because it's amazing there's this part where they're like having dinner together and he's like made his like signature salad dressing and she's like really really enjoying it right and he's like oh like the sounds she's making as she eats this are like really sexy and then he like imagines her in a bathtub of salad dressing which like sounds gross but it's like so charming in the moment like i was so about it <laughs> and if you try to explain that to someone else they'll be like what and like i just i love reggie so much because she's like totally like a like i have to hang on to everything with this like white knuckle grip or it's all gonna spin out of control which is like absolutely me 100 um, <laughs> and i just like it was just like the fanish romance that i didn't know i needed and i just i love it so much um i just started so i'm not very far in but i just started uh Oh my gosh. Uh what which one is it? It's a Cat Sebastian and it's the one with um Robin and Alistair and I want to say it's unmasking the Marquis. Yes. The non-binary character and they're like yeah. dressing as yes. their friend. Yes. Um and I'm in- really enjoying it so far but I'm like two chapters in. And then I just I just read uh Lydia San Andres's um Oh my gosh. I think it's called Summer for Scandal. It's the f- first one in a series i'm pretty sure and it's set in a like 
it's like a early 20th century like Caribbean island and it's like this girl she has a job as a typist but secretly she's writing like erotic romance like serialized yep. erotic romance yep, that's a summer for scandal yeah and then the the hero is like in town for the summer and he like has this he's trying to build up his literary magazine and because her books are so popular he's been kind of piggybacking on her success by writing like nasty reviews of her books and it's like but she doesn't know it's him and he doesn't know it's her and like then there's like a charity bazaar for like women's suffrage and like all this stuff. It's like, it's just so delightful and like so vivid and like the characters, like there's just like a real, like I never know how to explain this. It's like, because it's there are mean people and there's like, but there's just like a, like a warmth and like a kindness, like in the writing that is like, so well they're constantly feeding each other yeah that too <laughs> the descriptions of food are like offsides, <laughs> offsides. My, speaking of which i just read um reread courtney because i also I, I got to read an early draft of that because i'm very 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 lucky but i just reread um courtney milan's mrs martin's incomparable adventure um which is her new ff novella um Victorian old ladies take like brutal revenge on like a mean dude. Yes. And they've it all down, but there's like a lot of cheese toast in the book. And like, mm-hmm. I definitely had to make myself cheese toast multiple times while I was reading it. There are just some foods that just com- instantly communicate comfort. And that is, that is definitely one of them. I yeah. still feel like I don't a hundred percent understand like how Victorian grilled cheese works there's like they have these like little machines they use but I like I need to find like I bet there's somebody that has like a YouTube video that will explain it to me I am sure that it is on YouTube and if not it will be shortly (laughs) is there anything else you want to add or make sure you mention oh I guess I also uh I do workshops if anybody's like library wants like a historical research workshop I'm giving oh and I'm also scheduled to give my uh women in regency politics workshop online at um I think it's for the heart romance writers it's f-t-h-r-w anyway um and uh that's going to be online in December and I do like an overview of the Regency political system. And then I do like a deep dive into like the different ways that women participated as like vote holders, as patronesses, as right. hostesses, et cetera, et cetera. And yes, they're operating within the existing power structure. But for example, because votes were, there were property qualifications for votes, which obviously is terrible. Um, but if women had property that qualified, they had mm-hmm. a vote. Mm-hmm. And so then they, they, they usually needed a representative to cast the vote. If they were married, it was typically understood to be their husband. But if they were separated, like he no longer, like if they were still married, but they were separated, like he no longer had the right to cast that vote. It went back. Um, and if they were not married, they could choose their own representative. There are a lot of ways that women did sort of more directly participate in that kind of, you know, uh, <laughs> what we would now consider probably undemocratic, but like that sort of direct electioneering. And that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you to Rose Lerner for this interview. I had such a good time and I hope you enjoyed it as well. If you would like to find out more, you can learn more about all of the things. Rose Lerner's website is roselerner.com. And you can also go to her research site, rosedoestheresearch.com. Her Twitter is roselerner. And her Patreon is patreon.com slash 
Rose Lerner. Pretty easy to remember, right? I cannot recommend her Patreon newsletter more highly. I I love it, and I'm so excited to read it every time it shows up in my inbox. It is a treat. So if you're at all curious, definitely have a look. This week's episode is sponsored by Darkness Returns by Alexandra Ivy. After a brief hiatus, everyone's favorite vampire clan is back. War is once again upon the Guardians of Eternity, and the fate of the world rests in the hands of one rebellious vampire with a chip on his shoulder. The darkness is growing. Soon it will devour everything in its path. To fight back against the forces of the night, he must choose between loyalty to his kind and the mortal woman he loves. Darkness Returns by Alexandra Ivy is on sale now wherever books are sold and at kensingtonbooks.com. This week's transcript is, as always, handcrafted by Garlic Knitter and brought to you by Radish. You can discover a world where storytelling is reimagined with Radish, an app with thousands of romance stories from best-selling authors like Lisa Renee Jones and Kelly Armstrong and Sylvia Day and Julia Ginner, all in bite-sized chapters, perfect to read on your morning commute or on your lunch break or before bed. You can enjoy epic romances full of everything. Everything you like, including billionaire bosses, tattooed bad boys, sexy vampires, and paranormal shifters. You can join live chat rooms and interact with authors and readers who love the same stories you do. There is a fresh collection of original stories written by some of daytime TV's top Emmy-winning writers. Bingeable, fast-paced stories that you won't find anywhere else. Maybe you're interested in romantic fantasies, like Heart of Dragons, where a woman is ripped away from her dashing fiancé to be sacrificed to the dragons that live beneath the earth, only to find herself falling in love with a powerful dragon prince. Radish has it all. Download the app in the Google Play Store or the Apple Store for free today and begin your adventure on Radish. We also have a Patreon. Patreon is really a tremendous opportunity for people who make stuff. If you have supported the show with a monthly pledge, thank you very, very much. You are helping me make sure that every episode is transcribed and that the show keeps going each week. If you would like to join, patreon.com slash smartbitches. Monthly pledges start at $1, and each and every pledge means that you appreciate the work we do and that you want the show to keep going. Your support is so appreciated. You can find out more at patreon.com slash smartbitches. And, yes, live show, Thursday, March. No, not March, May. Did you also know that it's 2019? I have to remind myself that regularly. Anyway, May, May 16, not March 16, May. May 16, 3.30 p.m. Imperial 5C. Me, Amanda, Elise, live show at Book Lovers Con. If you're going to be at Book Lovers Con, I hope you will come and hang out with us because live shows are so much fun. You can find out more in the show notes and you can sign up to attend. It's free. We just need chairs. We need to know how many chairs for the people like you who'll be there at smartbitchestrashybooks.com slash podcast. The music you are listening to is provided by Sassy Outwater. You can find out more about this in the show notes. Again, at http colon slash slash. I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> this is Caravan Palace. This track is called Susie, and you can find out more about them at Caravan Palace. Actually, that would be http colon slash slash. <laughs> Actually, no, it's HTTPS now. HTTPS for special. You can find Caravan Palace on their website, on Facebook, and on iTunes and Amazon. I will have links to all of those things. 
I'm amusing myself so much. I think it's the cold medicine. (laughs) Coming up on Smart Bitches this week, we have so many reviews of new books. There are so many new books coming out this month that people are excited about. Holy smokies. We also have a new edition of Cover Snark because we like to make you laugh. And we have a discussion question because I'm super nosy. Plus, next week is Book Lovers Con, and Amanda, Elise, and I will be there. We're doing the live show. Don't forget about that. And we'll also be posting, as usual, books on sale and help a bitch out. You are most emphatically invited to come hang out with us at smartbitches.com. Now, Kit is keeping me in terrible jokes, and I love this terrible joke. I love all of the jokes that Kit has sent. This is just completely making my day. You ready? This is really terrible. I love it. Did you hear what happens? What happened? Did you hear what happened when the husband sued his wife over her dreadful coffee? Yeah, true story. Husband sued his wife over her dreadful coffee, and the lawsuit was dismissed for insufficient grounds. (laughs) That's such a groany joke. Insufficient grounds. (laughs) Thank you, Kit. (laughs) I have links to everything we talked about and all of the books that Rose mentioned, as well as television shows and movies. But as always, on behalf of everyone here, including my dog, we wish you the very best of reading. I am super excited about the cold medicine that I've taken today to make this outro really goofy. Thank you for listening. We will see you back here next week. I'm gonna do what